Welcome back to Body Talk with Bex. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Jenny Jones. She was born with a rare condition called familial adenomatous polyposis, also known as FAP. This is a genetic condition that is passed down and in short, it causes extra tissues, also known as polyps, to form in your large intestines and rectum. And generally, if these go untreated, they are likely to become cancerous when you're in your 40s. Although this can vary if it's more of the spontaneous or if it's passed down as it was in Jenny's family. So let's just jump right on in. few technical questions to start with and then we'll kind of move into more about the experience as well after that. So and before we really, really jump into yours, I also wanted to make note that so familial adenomatous polyposis. Did I say that correctly? Uh, Familial adenomatous polyposis. Okay. You can call it FAP. Okay. FAP is inherited genetically, so children of parents who have FAP have about a 50% chance of inheriting it. And yes. so you mentioned that your mother was diagnosed with this when you were little. And I know you were really little, like three months old, I think you said was her first surgery. Well, she knew that she had FAP before that. She was diagnosed with colon cancer because of it when I was three okay. months old. Okay. And so before your diagnosis, do you remember anything at all about kind of her journey or what that was like as a kid, you know, watching your mom go through anything? I I, I knew, um, I remember like, I know that she had an ostomy and that she had to change it every so often. And so dad and I, well, I don't think I really helped, but I was there and dad helped her. So I, I, I don't have specific memories of that, but I know I knew that at the time. Yeah. I was just curious if you remembered that at all. And then you were diagnosed at a young age. As well. I mean, I from researching it, I was looking um, both the Mayo Clinic and the National Organization for Rare Disorders say that typically FAP is diagnosed in a person's 30s or 40s. But so you were diagnosed at what, eight years old? About eight. Because if a parent has it, then they can get their children that, you know, have a genetic test done for it now and everything. And at the time, like that was just coming out, I think when I was or got diagnosed or so it wasn't too long before that, but because they, and the only reason I actually got diagnosed that young was because I was having stomach pain. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause then they, they would have waited until my teens to get me to a doctor. Cause that's kind of what they did back then from my mom's experience. Okay. Okay. Then yeah, tell us about your treatments and surgeries and just walk us through your experience here. I mean, you've certainly been through the ringer. <laughs> yeah, so when I was about eight, I was having stomach pain that wouldn't go away. And so my parents, they their insurance required them to have a, it was an HMO. So they had to get a referral for it to see a specialist, but she denied it because she said I was just whining. There was nothing wrong with me. So my parents changed insurances and got me to a GI specialist. And as soon as she heard my symptoms 
and my family history, she immediately got me scopes and genetic testing done. From that, she found colon polyps, but she also found out that I was pre-ulcerous in my stomach and that was what was causing my pain. And that was due to stress. I was like in third grade and I'm so stressed out. Where were you stressed out from? I don't know. I'm like, you know, knowing me now, like that really does not surprise me. I went on my medicines now. It gives me such horrible dry mouth. Yeah, I watch. I literally just filled my big water bottle as well. (laughs) Yeah. But so when she did the genetic testing and that also confirmed that I had had FAP. So when I was nine, my polyps were starting to turn cancerous. So they they decided to go ahead and and do the surgery to remove my colon. However, after the first surgery, then my incision got infected two weeks later. So I had to be taken back to the ER and they had to cut open my incision in the ER and to clean it and pack it and everything. And they didn't give me uh, any effective pain medicine though. Or anesthesia back <laughs> Oh my gosh. It was it was awful. And then a week later, I started having chronic abdominal pain again. And so my parents took me back to the ER and they did an x-ray and the doctor said there's nothing wrong with her. She's just whining. So the next morning, my parents took me back because the pain wasn't any better. And a different doctor did more testing and he was like, well, your intestine um, has wrapped around itself and your surrounding organs. And we've got to get you into surgery to remove this part because it's cutting off your blood supply. And they were amazed that I had even made it through the night. Oh like my that. God. So, so a fourth surgery, I had a J pouch they had started when they did the, the colon removal that caused my J pouch to die. So they had to remove that also. And then I had to have adhesions removal that next year, but things were health wise were stable after that. My mental health was awful because I had medical PTSD and I was so depressed and so angry. It was just a horrible time for all for my parents and me because of all of it. But in high school, I went to counseling and I started processing things. And soon after that, they discovered that during a scope that they thought that they could do a straight pull through reversal on me to reverse my ostomy. And so they, uh, they did that. And that part went well, except what happened because of all these surgeries, I had more adhesions that caused a stricture around my small intestine. But they did, it took several months of all kinds of tests in and out of state that they couldn't figure out what was going on with me because I was having, I have a short bowel syndrome also because of the removal part of my small intestine from the complications. So between that and the stricture that they later discovered, I was having, I was going to the bathroom about like a liter at a time. And if I wasn't doing that, then I was vomiting. And so I couldn't, I wasn't absorbing anything. I was, I was just, my electrolytes were all over the place. And I, you know, I couldn't, it got to the point where I was having to have lab and, and doctor visits every single week just to see if I needed to be in the hospital yet. Because I was constantly in, um, and my doctor later told me that she didn't know if she would ever see me that next week at each of my weekly appointments with her. The last resort was to do an exploratory surgery, though, and that's when they discovered the adhesions uh, stricture, and so they removed that. And it took probably about, I think, five years for my body to adjust from all of that, and so I had a lot of pain 
and um and and I still had a lot of diarrhea from the short bowel syndrome, but it it was better. But it just my electrolytes, my body just couldn't quite get adjusted yet until about five years later. And I did really well. And then last year in 2021, I had my eighth surgery to remove my gallbladder. It was full of gallstones, but it also was precancerous from the FAP. And that went well, except it triggered or made worse. I I got diagnosed with abdominal migraine uh, this year because two weeks after my that surgery for my gallbladder removal, I started having all these different pains and they couldn't figure out what was going on. And I, I literally had to force myself to go to work. And then when I wasn't at work, I was in bed because that was the only thing that relieved my pain some. So I had to go through all these specialists and try to go through all these tests. And finally, I... They figured I was abdominal migraine, which they think was actually started in 2015 when I fell and hit my head from dehydration. Oh, my gosh. But it caused some pain and nausea, but I was able to manage it with other medicines. And then the surgery just kind of kicked it into high gear, I guess. Right. But now it's I've got on the right medicines for it and everything. And it's so much better, except just this one makes me have really bad dry mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. That's a lot. So a lot of this was when you were in school. Were you really able to attend school? My fifth grade year, which was, I was during the time of my first surgeries and my first surgery was, was, it was like in June. So at the end of school year, but then it all went over into the next year. So that year I homeschooled, my mom taught me. And by that next year I was, I was stable again. So I went back to public school. And then in high school, um, my, my high school was, they were amazing with me because I was in the hospital at least every few months after my reversal surgery. And they worked with me great. They had me do like home-based. And so that way, if I didn't feel good enough to go to school, I could, I could do it from home. My parents would go get my, my homework and my, my teachers worked with me. And I even had one of my teachers uh, tutor me, like even when I was in the hospital, so that to make sure that I could finish. And then in college, my my professors were really good. They they in high school and college, they gave me accommodations. And um, it was kind of always funny because when I'd have to go in the hospital, because in college, it was mixed between my electrolytes and my my hemoglobin being dropped out from from me because I have a bleeding ulcer from my short bowel syndrome also during that whole reversal. And so I didn't ever like tell my professors exactly why I needed to. I mean, I guess I didn't give them any medical facts. And so they'd be like, I was like, I'm going to the, I gotta go to the hospital. I'm bleeding internally. I'll be back in a week or <laughs> <laughs> and they're always like, what are you, okay, are, do you need to go now? And I'm like, yeah, cause I, I remember one time I went into one of my professor's office and I said, I'll be in class today, but I've got to go to the ER and get admitted afterwards because I'm bleeding internally is what I'd always call it. <laughs> and she was like, well, don't you need to go now? And I'm like, no, no, it can wait an hour. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Like, what are you talking about? You can wait. <laughs> and, the, and at the time, you know, like back then I was so shy about my medical stuff. So I, and I didn't, I it never, like now I'd just be like, I'm anemic and I've got to, I've got to get transfusions. But yeah. back then, like, the only thing that would come to my mind that wouldn't, was that I was bleeding internally, which is not the right diagnosis at all. I'm not. <laughs> right. I'm not, <laughs> But it always makes me laugh looking back. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm just trying to imagine like your professor's look on their face as you say that. Yeah. 
probably were like, what is wrong with this girl? She's that's that's amazing. They were so um accommodating for you. Yeah, they were really amazing. And like and I in grad school I didn't I wasn't sick, but I had I had talked to them too about any time if I needed accommodations and they were just they were always were wonderful. And it's and I know some people have such a hard time with their schools accommodating yeah. and stuff. I was very fortunate. Yeah, I had a different experience when I was in high school. We wound up I wound up homeschooling all through high school because the the last school I had been to were not accommodating. And like my brother went to the same school as I did in junior high and I was missing school a lot that year. And he would go to all of my professors at the end of the school day and ask for my homework so that I could do it at home. And they would just be like, no. Oh my God. Like, why not? (laughs) I'm here asking for it so she can learn and graduate. And yeah. So it's really nice to hear that other school systems are, can be accommodating and really work with kids that need it. Yeah. Well, I had my guidance. Well, I don't, I really don't know what her title was. She was kind of like a counselor in high school and she kind of dealt with all of us that had any type of medical or special needs or something like that. And so she had an, an office she could go to and they had a private bathroom. And so I kept a, a, a extra ostomy appliance, um, you know, things to change there and close anything. And if anytime I needed to get away or anything that I could go in there. And she actually was the one that got me to be open to the idea of going to counseling, which really honestly changed my life. And it was, she, uh, she did a lot for me. Good. I'm really glad to hear that, that you had somewhere that you could go and someone to talk to. And yeah, yeah, that's really important. It is because it was just, you know, when you got a kid and, uh, and they're going through such depression and, and PTSD and they're so angry, it's not, it's hard on everybody, but it's, that's such a vulnerable age to. Yeah. I mean, all your hormones are haywire anyways, and then throw on all this extra stuff. It's, it's a lot to handle as a kid. Were you able to take part of other like social aspects of being a kid and a teenager, like hobbies and going to school events and stuff? Yeah. So I did my first, I, I, I knew that I physically wasn't really able to do PE, but my uh, high school had a really big choir and show choir uh, program. And so for your freshman year, you didn't have to try out for show choir and, and that counted as a PE credit. And I could have like requested to opt out of the PE credit, but I was like, well, I can do show choir. That's not, that's just dance. You know, I mean, I say just dancing, like that's not hard, but it was, I could do that, whereas I, I couldn't do that. Yeah. And uh, so I did that and I really enjoyed it. And like we even, um, I didn't do it any of the other years as show choir because you had audition for it. And I was like, well, that, I'm too shy for that. <laughs> I did the, I did just regular choir for the rest of the, my um, high school and I got to go. It was, I, we went to uh, New York for a, a competition and I got to go to that. And it was actually like right after that, when we got back is when I started having all the symptoms from after my reversal. So I got really lucky, but so I, I got to do things like that. And I would, I'd go watch football games every now and then it wasn't really my cup of tea, but I'd go sometimes. And my, I think I, I didn't tell like my friends anything that was going on. They just knew and I was in school. They just knew that I was in the hospital a lot and, but they were, um, my friends and everything were really supportive. 
So they kind of worked around my schedule and everything and what I needed to, so that I could hang out still and do things. That's great. Yeah. I mean, having those even just small things of like going to those football games, even if you're not really into football or whatever, like just having those types of things to look forward to is just such a great like distraction as well. And gives you something to look forward to. That's not just like dealing with medical stuff at home. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, You get to have that, that high school experience with all the things that they like to do. What's it called? Fear missing out. You don't have to. (laughs) Right. So at a certain point, were you and your mom able to have like open and honest conversations since you shared like the same diagnosis and some experiences? Yeah. And it's been more as an adult, um, I think, because I know I I, mean, I know growing up, I, I knew that she had an ostomy and I didn't I knew my grandpa had one. And I know when when I got diagnosed, and I was going to have surgery. They were like, you, you know, you have what mom and grandpa have and, and you're going to have an ostomy like them and that. I don't think I really quite grasped what it was because I had a really hard time accepting the ostomy. Um, it was supposed to be temporary for three months and then it turned into six years. And that was part of my depression. I just never adjusted to it. And, and so those were very volatile uh, years for me. My parents, we, we, I was, I blamed them. I was so angry at them and, and the doctors and, and anyone that I thought I could blame it on. And, and, but once I went to counseling and process things that I got, I, was able to have a really deep, meaningful relationship with my parents again. And, and especially now we, we just, we talk a lot. And I, and I, even in high school, I was, when I was so sick, I remember pulling my mom aside and I was just like, I'm, I'm near death. I'm going to die. And I just want you to know that I love you. And that was an open conversation. She didn't yeah. expect but we kind of we're more we're, we're a unit even now I'm 30 about to be 37 we're, we're the unit of three of us so we're we've got a very, very close uh, relationship where we can talk openly and everything and good and it's not that we couldn't before I didn't allow it before yeah I mean I feel like I I felt like I was close with my mom growing up as well but I definitely have noticed that since becoming an adult it we've definitely grown a lot closer and we can have more of those more open and honest conversations that you're talking about they've become easier to have and it's like easier to talk to her about things and ask questions so I know I just think it's a great opportunity for parents and kids to be able to forge those relationships absolutely And I know it's harder, obviously, as you're a kid, like you were saying, you know, you're angry for a while. And I mean, you should be, (laughs) but it's also a great opportunity to grow out of that, which you've done. And I I think that's that's, uh, an important thing for both the parent and the child, because I know my parents had... I mean, I, I can only imagine the pain that I inflicted upon them. And so I, I know it is come full circle now where, you know, we're, we're so close again. And, and it's, I think it's been healing for both of us or we're all three of us, but you know, yeah. I think it's been my mom. So what are some things that you still do? You mentioned you have medications. Um, do you have any like special diets you have to mind? Do you do doctor's visits pretty regularly? Uh, I see, um, I go to a doctor 
uh, about every three months. I have a variety of specialists that I go to for different things too. But so I'm getting lab work on a regular basis and everything. Sometimes I have to get iron infusions because of my anemia. I take a lot of iron pills for it to try to uh, lengthen the time in between them. But usually once a year, I I have to at least get a, a round of them. I can't do it enough. I have, I have several medications to help manage different symptoms and, and try to keep my electrolytes, my, my minerals and vitamins in, in the right range and everything. And then I have to, right now, every two years is when I get scopes to check for polyps and they check my ulcer and everything. And that varies from person to person. So my mom, she has to get scopes about every four months then because of the rate her polyps grow, mine are slower or not as many. And so they've been able to to lengthen the time for me presently. And then I have to get um, a yearly thyroid ultrasound because that's one of the, the cancers that's at higher risk for with FAP2. So I... I do that every, every year also for it. Wow. That's a, that's a lot to keep track of. Yeah, it's, I have to see like a nephrologist also because I have a cyst on my kidneys, which could either mean that I have, there's one on both of them. So it could either be a polycystic kidney disease, which no one in my family has, which is also, a, I understand it's being inherited, but the, she thinks that it's because I'm dehydrated and it's caused me to have these cysts and cysts are common with FAP, but because of my short bowel syndrome, I, I stay chronically dehydrated. It doesn't really matter how much I drink. So she monitors those to make sure that it's not affecting my, you know, so they start to multiply or get too big, then it's going to start affecting my kidneys. And so she keeps track of that also just, just in case. Yeah. Wow. Are those more likely to be benign cysts? Yeah, I, I think so. Like they're, um, cause like this is a lot of times with FAP, like it will especially get cysts that are just like under the skin and they're, they've always been benign. And I haven't really heard of a lot of people having cancerous cysts with FAP, but I'm sure it's a possibility, but, um, a she's lower not, possibility. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she doesn't think they're they're cancerous or anything. She hasn't seen any signs of it, at least. So that's good. That's, that's really good. Yeah. So iron iron infusions is that what you had said? Okay. What is that? What is that process like? So I was getting them. I was doing what was called ferrahem, and that's only two rounds. So I only I only I'd get one for about it take an hour and a half total process, and I would do that twice for that round. And that was all I had to do. But then I got switched to uh, Vinifer because it was cheaper after my infusion clinic got sold to a different hospital and there a lot more. (laughs) So, but Vinifer was, is um, five times for, for a a round. And so I could, they told me that I could do that all in one sitting and that would be like, you know, pretty much an all day thing. And I was like, well, that doesn't work well. I mean, yeah. you, you let you go to the bathroom, but <laughs> I mean, I should hope so. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I don't really want to <laughs> worry about that for, you know, five, six hours. So yeah. I go in once. So they had, they would do about every two days. So twice a week I would go in and get, although I guess if I did a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they would do three, three days a week, but I'd have to go in, allow at least a day in between them. Gotcha. To go. So it wasn't too terrible. It's just kind of time consuming with five of them, but yeah. 
Do you notice a difference when you are um, iron deficient versus like when you're doing good right after? Oh gosh, the, it had actually been, I think I uh, almost two years since I had my last iron infusion before. I, I had one in May this year and I think it had been two years before that. And so my boyfriend, we've been together for, for over two years now, but he hadn't seen me after an iron infusion before. So he didn't have any idea what kind of energy I had. And I was off the walls bouncing around around like I couldn't go to sleep I was just like well I've got energy let's I, I need to go clean this room and let's go declutter things and he's like it's 11 o'clock at night can we go to bed and I'm like well let me finish something real quick and he's just like oh my god like I couldn't we, we would watch TV show after dinner and I'd get up and I'd, I'd, he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm, I'm decluttering this one closet. I'll be back in a bit. And he's just like, what is wrong with you? I have energy. That's what's wrong. <laughs> and then, but then of course, like, um, soon after my, my iron infusions this year, my, uh, my ulcer started bleeding for three days. <laughs> so I was oh, like, no. well, there's, there, my really big energy peak went down to just a normal energy peak. It's not not super, you know. It's it's a stable now, but I kind of got out of that <laughs> where I couldn't sleep because of it. Now I'm now in a, a more regular range. Gotcha. Okay, and so he knows everything that you've you've been through and. He's pretty yeah. understanding and he's, he's so great. He took me to my surgery last year for me and, and stayed with me and my parents could have taken me, but with COVID and everything, they, they'd only let one person. And I was like, I don't, you know, my, my mom, she had an ERCP like that same week, I think like a couple of days before. And I was like, okay, you don't need to be up there. Cause she always feels horrible after them. And I was like, and dad needs to stay with you just in case you need something. And so I was like, cause my mom was like, I want to go. And I was like, just I know, but because of this, let's just let Mike, Mike, let Mike do it. And so he took care of me and he's, he's so supportive and understanding. And it's kind of funny though, because he's pretty healthy. So I'll complain about a pain or something. He's like, do we need to go to the ER? And I'm like, no, no it's pain. All they're going to do is give me pain medicine. And I don't want pain medicine because I don't like pain medicine. Right. <laughs> I'm just going to suffer through it and see how I feel tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. That's cute though. Oh, he's so concerned. <laughs> yes, he is. And he's, he's learning. He's just kind of like, well, okay, well if you, if you tell me if I need to take you. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> That's adorable. Oh, I'm, I'm happy for you that you found someone that is so great with all that because that's important in a partner yeah and he's he's a graphic designer too and so he actually um without me even asking him to he helps me design different uh, rare disease and chronic illness designs for my i have a shop to raise funds for fip research and so he'll make up new designs for me and everything that's adorable um is that linked on your blog it is Okay, good. I'm going to link your blog in the show notes to this. So anyone who's listening that wants to check it out, they can go take a look at it. Yeah. And so check out the shop, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, all the the FAP Research Fund, I started it through Nord in 2015. So I donate all profits from the shop to that research fund. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, I just said you you have a blog. And so all this, of course, was influenced by your own experiences. What else do you do with 
with the blog, I mean, you, you write about your experiences. What else do you talk about on there? I'll do a guest post with uh, other writers or just anyone that's kind of, if they want to share their story or they have, so I've had like a physical therapist write me a guest, po- a guest post about, you know, therapy exercises to do after you, know, you have abdominal surgery. So I'll do like, I've had some people talk about different types of counseling to help with like pain or different things like that. And then I'll also do kind of educational ones, like about desmoid tumors or how anemia affects the heart or things. So it's not necessarily because like I don't have desmoid tumors, but that's part of the FAP. So not everybody has them, but there are people that do. So just kind of raising education too about things that even are not my exact experience. But they right. and, and so then I also, um, I expanded it into a YouTube channel. So I do short videos sometimes on things that may not necessarily be a get a get actual written blog post about or um, just kind of a quick something, a few minutes to what I want to share about something. And then I've also, I wrote a children's book called Life's Apollo Zeke and Katie that came out this year. And it's, uh, it's about FAP also to help kids understand what that is for if they have it or a loved one has it. And then I'm out on social media too, because I'm always trying to find different ways to raise awareness for things for it all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something about having a rare disease is when you talk to people, even sometimes doctors, I've had to explain, you know, what I have and what I've been through and they won't even know, you know, you'll list a name of a surgery you've had and like, I don't know what that is. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it it, may, it makes such a difference to be prepared to be able to educate your doctor about your own disease and yeah. history and, and what you're needing going forward. Yeah. At the same time, sometimes I feel like I walk into the doctor's office and she's like, oh, boy. Yeah. Her again. She's going to tell me exactly what she wants and needs. <laughs> I know my GI doctor, they, um, they told me that I utilize their online portal more than any other patient they have. <laughs> I was like, I believe it. Yeah. I mean, if you know what you need and you have yeah. access to it online, to, you know, mm-hmm. schedule appointments and get medications and things, why not be proactive? Absolutely. And, and they weren't, um, meaning it negatively, but right, was, right. you know, they were like, yeah, you're the most active on there I'm like well yeah I mean because I don't when I get I on my uh, online account it gives me anytime I get any uh, lab results or, or any type of tests I've had done like imaging tests or things they are uh, the posts on my thing before because it usually will post you know as soon as it's been processed and so I see it before a doctor ever calls me and so yeah. I like immediately get on and message my doctor <laughs> I kind of do the same thing too. (laughs) I'm just like, okay, so this is, these are my questions or what are we doing? Or this is what I think we should do now. (laughs) But it, 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 I think it makes a difference though, you know, and they, um, and a good doctor is going to know that, you know, your body. And so I think they're, they're like, well, you know, they're, they know what's going on, which is a very good thing. And, and they're advocating for themselves. So a good doctor, I don't think is going to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they're going to understand too, that the more that you demonstrate that, you know, your body, the more they're going to believe you when you have an issue and actually try to help you find the source to fix it. Absolutely. When it was, it was funny because so, and I, I found this neurologist uh, this year because I, I had gone through all these different specialists trying to figure out what was going on. And, and he diagnosed me with abdominal migraine. And it was, um, 
I, I have a lot of anxiety and, and fear with new doctors because of my medical experiences in the past. And, and so I was just like, I mean, I was having like every week, it seemed like I'd have a new symptom. And so I'd call and tell them about it and everything. And, and I, all these tests were coming back negative and they were all, you know, they were all fine. And I'm just like, and I kept telling them, I was like, I was like, I'm not, I said, I feel like, you know, you think that I'm just making this up and, and I'm not, I'm like, cause you don't know me and, and I'm not a hypochondriac. I'm not like, this is, and he, and he, right. I mean, he just was, he's like, I always believe my patients. Cause why would you lie to me? I, he goes, of course you have those symptoms. I believe you. And he thought it was like the most ridiculous thing to me to be all worried about. And, and feel like I had to, you know, like express this concern to him. Like, he's just like, I believe you. It's okay. And I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> like you. a weight off your shoulders. <laughs> and then my, like my overthinking brain was like, well, now what does he think? Because I brought this up to him twice now. Like, and I was sitting, he's just, you know, I'm like, it's, okay. it's fine. He believes me. It's fine. Just calm down. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Do you mind? I'm curious because I never had um, an ostomy bag of any sort. Do you mind talking to me about what that was like? Now, and granted, as an adult now who has gone to counseling and accepted things, I absolutely believe that I would handle this completely different now than I did as a kid. Because back then, I, I absolutely hated it. And I, I, I hated myself for I judged myself for it. And I... I attached that negative negative stigma that some people have about him to myself. And, and by no means was that accurate or correct or anything. I should not have done that. And this is not, there's nothing wrong with an ostomy. I went to. Yeah. <laughs> but some people with an ostomy, they, they don't, they can change their bag like once a week or, or every 10 days or something. I never had that experience. So I had an ileostomy. So I had a lot of liquid output. And so I had to have the a drainable pouch so I could empty it. And probably every every few hours I did. But so I would change it um, about every three or four days. And that usually wasn't a very big deal. Like sometimes my skin would get sore, especially if we were having like a lot of, if I was having an issue with leaks or, or things like that, that we had like a, my mom would put a skin prep on it to help protect that. And so, and they actually... I don't remember when they came out with this, but you, you would use a, a glue, which I want to say, I remember that burning sometimes if my skin was really sore, but they came out with, with an Eakin seal, um, is what my mom uses. And that doesn't burn at all. And like, that's a fantastic invention. It does the same thing as the glue and you can mold it with your hands because the heat of your hands kind of mm. helps it doesn't sting or anything. And, but I don't remember when that came out. So I don't remember if I got to use it or not, but I know my mom uses it and has good luck with it, but you never wanted to let, I never wanted to let the, the bag get too full. Cause then it would cause a leak, but I was, I, I'm a, I'm a side stomach sleeper. And so I figured out a way to kind of sleep on my side without actually laying on my bag. So I could still kind of sleep. <laughs> you gotta be real careful with that, but yeah. otherwise that, you know, that'll cause issues and everything. So. Oh man. Um, I hadn't even thought about trying to sleep with one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, especially if you're not used to sleeping more on your side or on your on your uh, back, it, it could be challenging. But I, I'd always end up, I'd have to wake up, you know, a couple of times during the night or something. I remember it was soon after I had my 
my ostomy, I had, I had to go to the bath. I could tell I needed to go to the bathroom that it was full, but I couldn't wake up fully. And so I dreamt that I went to the bathroom, but I did what I did my sleep. I emptied it in the bed and my parents were so mad. Oh no. They're like, you have to wake up and you have to, I was like, I thought I did. It was, and that was like in between dreams stay. Like, it was awful. I was like, and so now to this day, like I, that has stuck in my mind so much that now I'm kind of always like, make sure you're not dreaming and like, just go in the bed, like <laughs> make sure you're, you're up and you actually go. Cause I'll still have sometimes like I'll be, and I'll be like, I'll be dreaming that I have gotten up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. And I'm just like, wait, no, no, that's a dream. You, you need to get up. <laughs> Like, like traumatized me after I was like, I was so afraid to do it again. <laughs> yeah. Are there other experiences that you want to share? Well, um, well, I guess that's pretty much covered it. I think actually, because we talked about the mental health, I always like to touch on that. Yeah. Like important aspect of, because honestly, I mean, I think anyone, when you get a diagnosis or you have a surgery, like, I think it's good to go to counseling, even if you don't really think you need it. Cause that's a lot to take in and it may not really hit you at the moment, but it can hit you later on. And, yeah. and honestly, I mean, I don't, I think everybody in the world ben- would benefit from counseling. So I don't, you know, it's just going to be able to help. Yeah. Even if you're not really having a mental health issue. Yeah. No, I, I tried to think of questions that covered everything was like, Mm -hmm. because medical things don't just affect your, your physical health. I mean, it affects your relationships. It affects how you view life. It affects your mental health. I mean, it affects every aspect of your life. So it's been, I think it's probably been the most interesting for my parents because they were the ones that saw me through all of these things. But um, because people that see me now there, I think they're probably like, I can't imagine that you were like this before. Cause I, I went from this extremely shy. I was always a shy child, even before my medical stuff. And then when I got my medical stuff going on, then that I got even more shy because I was embarrassed and I, I didn't want anybody to know and, and all this stuff. And over the year, I mean, it's, it's, it took me close to three days. Well, I'll say two and a half decades. It took me about two and a half decades to fully accept my health and not be ashamed of it and to find purpose in it. So now I am so vocal about it. it and it, it's, it's so different from what I was even in high school. Yeah. And, and even it's, it's, it's been so liberating with the acceptance and, and, and just being able to share my story. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, I'd never heard of this before, so it was really interesting getting to research it and, you know, hear your perspective of what you've been through and just everything that you still have to, you know, do to maintain and stay healthy. (laughs) That's what my kind of my dad always says. We do what we, what we have to do, and we do the best that we can with the knowledge we have at the time. And yeah. So that's if I always remember that. Okay, well, that's whenever I have to make a decision or something. It's like okay, well, that's I'm gonna make the best I can to keep me going for as well as I can. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think that's some advice we have in our family too. <laughs> so yeah. it's pretty solid advice. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for coming on. I really enjoyed talking with you. I enjoyed it too. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Body Talk with Bex. I hope you found it as informative and eye-opening as I did, talking with Jenny about FAP and its long-lasting effects that it's had on her life. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts at. Also consider becoming a patron on patreon.com. We just rolled out some new great stickers for patrons. They're also available on the website if you prefer to just go pick up a sticker there. If you would like to share your story or know someone who does, I can be contacted through my website, www.bodytalkwithbex.com, or on social media. Also remember that all of the resources that I used to research these episodes are available on the show notes as well as a link to Jenny's blog about her life with FAP. Thanks for listening.